0: you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn to Genesis chapter 25, and we're going to pray, and we're going to ask God to meet with us today, and I want to give you one encouraging reminder, this is good news for you today, that the Bible tells us that God has done something in Christ, where the Word of God today, this morning, it's not in heaven, that we have to ascend to heaven to get it. The Bible says it's not in the abyss where we have to go down into the abyss to find the Word of God. God says that His Word is near to us in Christ. It is not too hard for us in Christ. And this is good news for us this morning that we can hear our God speak to us from Holy Scripture today and in Christ we can respond. And that's what we want to ask for help to do this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we gather... Again, Lord, we gather around Your Word. And we thank You this morning for these God-breathed words in Holy Scripture. Every, Every single word in this book is breathed out by You, Lord. It's hot breath from Your mouth, God. And You intend to speak to us today. And we pray, God, that You would speak with authority, that You would speak today with love and with grace and with power and with clarity, God. God, we ask for the presence of the Spirit in the midst of the church this morning, Lord. God, we need Your help today. Please reveal Your Word to us, God. Spirit of truth, guide us in all the truth according to Your promise. Lord, we know that everything You say is profitable, and that's our desire this morning, Lord, is to respond to You, and that Your Word would make a difference in our life. Thank You for bringing it near in Jesus Christ, and we pray that You would search out every one of us today exactly where we are in our life, and that You would give us our portion from heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 (laughs) We'll be in Genesis 25 this morning, and I'll make just a couple of remarks. It's been a while since some of us have reviewed the book of Genesis together, so I'll just mention just a couple of things. That when God gave us the book of Genesis, it came to us with a God-ordained structure. There's structure to it. The book of Genesis is divided into ten different sections that all begin with the Hebrew word Toledoth. Say that really quickly this morning. Toledoth. Toledoth. Ten Toledoth sections that make up the book of Genesis. Our ESV Bibles translates that word as generations. And each time that word occurs, it's the very beginning that introduces to us a new genealogy in the book of Genesis, many times you'll hear you know, man-made structures smuggled into the Bible. This is actually a God-ordained structure. This is how He gave us the book of Genesis with these Toledoth st- sections. And that's a, that's a very intentional thing by the writer of Genesis. Moses, as we come to these Toledoth sections in the book of Genesis... He intends for us to trace the promises that God makes from generation to generation to generation. They're supposed to be markers of the faithfulness of God that chosen men and chosen women, they may die, but the promise of God endures. These are these Toledoth sections. In our text today, we have two Toledoth sections in the same chapter Which tells us that Genesis 25, this is a big transition point in the book of Genesis. In just a few minutes, we're going to read the text where Abraham, the recipient of the covenant promises in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Abraham's going to die in this passage. He's going to breathe his last breath and he's going to enter into eternity. And these Toledo sections are like hinges. They're meant to refocus our attention on the next generation that Abraham's going to die. But the promise that God made to Abraham, the inheritance that God promised to Abraham, it will endure throughout all of eternity. We're going to see Genesis 25 the focus is going to shift from Abraham to his sons. As the inheritance is passed on to the chosen heir. So let's pick our text up this morning. In Genesis 25. 25. I highly considered having someone else read this text this morning. And in just a few minutes you'll figure out why. Let's read God's Word together. Verse 1. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba, Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashuram, Letushim, and Le'umen. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abidah, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Verse 5, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubi- concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. One hundred and seventy-five years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael... His sons buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There, Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Bir Laharoi. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in order of their birth. Nebaoth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar and Abil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Nafish, and Kadima. Verse 16, these are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names. By their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes, These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. And so this is the beginning of our text together This morning, and we see in verse 8 that Abraham dies, and the text tells us at 175 years old. 175 years old. Now, if we remember earlier in the book of Genesis, Abram was 75 years old before he responds to the call of God and goes out in search of the promised land. And what this means is that this man of God. This faithful man of God has sojourned in the land of Canaan for one hundred years and then he breathes his last breath. And in verse 9 we're told that his body rests in this very specific location, the cave of Machpelah. The cave of Machpelah. You remember just a couple of chapters earlier this is the same place where Sarah, his wife, was buried, and he bought this cave from the Hittites. And listen, this is important. This is the only piece of land that this man officially owns after 100 years of faithfully following Yahweh, the one true God, the One who was destined to inherit the land of Canaan, the promised land. He dies, He breathes His last and all he has to show for it is one piece of land, the cave of Machpelah. Hebrews 11 comments back on Abraham's life, and it reminds us that Abraham, he was not living for the here and now, he was a man of faith, he was looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promises. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about Abraham, beginning in Hebrews 11, verse 9. It says, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's the description of the man of faith. He looks forward. Looks forward. Looks past his life, his brief, vain, vapor of a life here on earth, and he looks forward to a coming city. writer of Hebrews goes on to say about Abraham and all the patriarchs. Hebrews 11, verse 13 says, These all died in faith. These all died in faith. Make that an ambition in your life to die in Jesus Christ. To die in faith. To go into the grave believing the promises of God. These all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So Genesis 25 is the closing chapter in Abraham's life. Abraham, the man of faith, the man who believed the promises of God. And what we're going to see is in his very last moments, his very last actions, as the patriarch, the chosen one, are going to be responses of faith to the promises of God. And I want to explain that to you this morning. Very brief attention in Genesis 25 is given to the other sons of Abraham. To the other sons of Abraham. We have a list of names in verses 1 through 4, and these are the sons of Keturah, Abraham's other wife, other concubine. And their names are listed in verses 1 through 4. And if you remember earlier in the book of Genesis, in a moment of sin, and not waiting upon the Lord, Abraham goes into his concubine, his wife Sarah's, uh, a slave, Hagar. And his firstborn son arrived named Ishmael. And we're introduced to the names of Ishmael's sons in verses 12-18. through 18. And the writer of Genesis is presenting these names to us as the non-elect line of Abraham. There's a chosen heir, and these names are not the chosen heir. They're the other sons of Abraham. In verse 6, and here's what we need to understand. This is an act of faith, an act of faith, not an act of hatred. But an act of faith, in verse 6 we're told that Abraham takes these other sons and he sends them away from the chosen one. He banishes them from Isaac's presence. He's making way for the chosen heir. And this is an act of faith. This is an act of Abraham believing those covenant promises that there's this chosen one This royal descendant that's going to come through his line that's going to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. And it's important that we see this. Abraham is not hating his other sons in this text of Scripture. In fact, the text tells us in verse 6 that he gives them gifts. He's not hating them. He sends them away from the chosen one with gifts. And listen, it's good news It is good news for these other sons of Abraham that the chosen one be established in the promised land. Because remember the promise, it's through this family and through this line that the one who's coming is going to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth, including the other sons of Abraham. One commentator says this, that Abraham sends these other sons away in faith in hopes that their descendants will return to Yahweh, the worship of the one true God. Isaiah the prophet actually picks up this theme that the other sons of Abraham will find blessing in the chosen son of Abraham. And Isaiah prophesies the return of of these other sons of Ishmael. Listen to these words in Isaiah 60, verse 6 and 7. Isaiah says this, "...a multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian..." Sound familiar? "...and Ephah..." Sound familiar? "...and those of Sheba shall come..." They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaoth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on My altar and I will beautify My beautiful house. The prophecy is that these sons will find blessing in the Chosen One In Isaac, this is an act of faith of Abraham. And it's good news to all of his sons that he be established as the undisputed heir of the promise of the covenant. Now, in Genesis chapter 12, we understand that the book of Genesis zones in on one man and his family and the rest of the book traces that family line. As the promise comes to Abraham, jumps to the next generation, Isaac jumps to the next generation, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the patriarchs of Israel. And from Genesis 12 forward, the book of Genesis is a story of birthright, of who's going to inherit when the patriarch dies. And in Genesis chapter 25, we already see that the answer to that is really clear, that Isaac will be the undisputed heir. He will be the recipient of the promises of the covenant. He will receive the blessing of the patriarch. Now here's what we need to understand. Okay? That this theme that's running through Genesis of firstborn and birthright, there's something important for us to grab. And the context of Genesis is the ancient Near East. That's what's going on in the world around them. And in the ancient Near East, the firstborn, and still today in that part of the world, the firstborn enjoys a privileged status within the family. While the patriarch is still alive, they, they enjoy a privileged status. And when that patriarch dies, they inherit the lion's share of the patriarch's possessions. This is the biblical context of the ancient Near East. The firstborn, in this passage, the chosen one, the birthright, inherits everything that the father has. This is the right of firstborn, the birthright. But something that we have to understand in this story and stories that follow it is in Abraham's family, this birthright is more specific than getting your father's stuff when your father dies. There's something something really unique that's happening in this family that's not happening in any other family during this time period. This family has received the covenant promises of God. This family alone has been marked out from all the other families in the world at this moment as the chosen lineage that will bring forth the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who will bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. So the birthright in Abraham's family means something different than it does in every other family in the world. The birthright in this family came with very specific promises, the inheritance of a future promised land, offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven, and the blessing of all the nations of the earth. The firstborn received messianic promises, messianic blessings from God. They're messianic because they're fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Firstborn, birthright, And Abraham's family, Messianic blessings. That's the grid that I want us to have as we read the rest of Genesis 25. And here's what I mean. If you were to ever meet a man in the ancient Near East who despised his birthright, you would call that man a fool. That he would despise this privileged position that he's been given in the family and the inheritance upon the death of the patriarch. If you were to meet one who despised this birthright, you would call him a fool. But in Abraham's family, if you were to meet one who despised the birthright, not only would you call him a fool, you would call him apostate. You would call call him an apostate. One who turned his back on Yahweh. Verse 18 leaves us with Isaac as Abraham's undisputed heir. And now the story shifts to the next generation. Isaac's going to inherit. He's going to have the birthright that belonged to Abraham. And now the question is, but who's going to inherit after Isaac? Who's going to be the next heir in line? And we'll pick it up again in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam-Aaron, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Verse 21, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations... "...are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called him Esau." Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So what I want us to see is we come to the second generation, Isaac and Rebekah, and here we bump in again to this theme of barrenness. Barrenness in the chosen family. And isn't it interesting that in every generation, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you have this theme of barrenness in the chosen line. And this is intentional by God. This is God's reminder to this family that they're not bringing forth this natural seed. That they've been set apart for these very specific purposes. And this theme of barrenness is a reminder to this family That they will not achieve these covenant promises through human striving, they must depend on Yahweh, the one true God. They must trust God to inherit the promise, to inherit the supernatural seed that God has promised this family. Look with me at verse 20. Isaac was 40 years old when he got married. Look down with me, verse 26. Isaac was 60 years old when his sons arrived. Even the simplest of math will tell you that this chosen family, the chosen one, was married for 20 years before the promise broke into fulfillment. Now I want you to think about that. This couple was destined and promised by God you will be the one... To bring forth offspring. I mean, think about it. They had promises from both sides of the family. From Abraham's family, this marriage was the marriage that would bring forth offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven. So when somebody like that gets married, you're thinking lots and lots of babies. And even Laban, Rebekah's brother, prophesied in the last chapter, thousands upon thousands will be your offspring. All eyes are on this couple and they're expecting bunches of bunches of babies and offspring to inherit the promise. And then what do you know? Nothing but barrenness. And the text tells us for 20 years. Verse 21 is a beautiful picture of the faith of Isaac. The faith of Isaac. Because it tells us that Isaac responded to this barrenness in a different way than his daddy did. Remember, Abraham was implicated because instead of waiting on God and trusting in God, Abraham goes and finds Hagar to to try to bring forth the promise himself. But Isaac prays to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And this is beautiful that in the context of Genesis, Genesis 25, He intercedes for His wife, listen, for 20 years. For 20 years He prays for His wife. For 20 years He takes that posture of intercession, the man of faith. For 20 years He stands on those covenant promises. Lord, You said. Lord, You said. God, stand by Your Word. Be faithful to fulfill Your Word. He intercedes. And in God's timing, after faithful intercession, God responds to His prayer after 20 years of standing on the promises of God. God responds to His prayer and His wife conceives. Verse 21. Now, think if you're writing this story. okay? Chosen couple gets married waits on the promise for 20 years, all of a sudden the promise breaks forth into fulfillment, and this is where you insert that happily ever after ending, right? This is what you're waiting for. And look what we find instead in Holy Scripture. The children struggled together within her. Verse 22. Children struggled together Within her, literally in the Hebrew, this is rendered that these children are crushing one another within her. This is a prophetic sign. Okay, Some of you have had really uncomfortable pregnancies. And I don't mean to discount that at all, but this is something different. This is something different. This is a prophecy happening in her womb. That these babies are crushing one another within her. This Hebrew word is a violent term that's used later in the Old Testament to describe skulls being crushed in warfare. Crushing. This is warfare in, in her womb. In Rebecca's womb. And the verb stand here tells us that this is reciprocal action. That these are reciprocal violent blows. That they won't stop crushing one another they're trying to kill each other in her body and and we see rebecca respond in distress in distress she's been praying for this baby her husband's been praying for this baby and now all of a sudden she's scared because she thinks either i'm about to die or these babies are about to die and so she Cries out to the Lord. This is the cry of suffering all through Scripture. Why? Why? She's she's reading this as a sign of the Lord's anger and judgment. Why, O Lord? We've waited on this promise. Why, O Lord? She doesn't know that this violent struggle in her womb is a prophetic sign. She doesn't know that Until the word of the Lord comes. So the word of the Lord is revealed to her in verse 23. Verse 23. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And so this prophetic sign in her womb is a foreshadowing of the life of these two sons, these twins. That they're struggling in the womb, they're fighting one another, and their whole life is going to be marked by that same thing. They will struggle. They will fight one another. They will be at enmity. They will be at odds. But even more than that, this conflict in her womb is going to extend past her son's to their sons descendants, two nations are in your womb. These two sons are going to be the beginning of two separate and contrary nations: the younger son, the younger son, Israel, and the older son Esau Jacob will beget Israel as a nation, and Esau the older will beget Edom as a nation, and we 're going to see that conflict play out all across the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, and even today, we are still feeling the echoes today of this prophecy from the mouth of the Lord. Two nations are in your womb. Two nations are in your womb. That last phrase in verse 23, the older shall serve the younger. The Lord takes the natural order of the way things work in this world and in this culture and he flips them upside down. You see what we just said a moment ago that the firstborn is the one who receives the birthright and the Lord Yahweh says no, in this specific case the younger will serve, the older will serve the younger. The older will serve the younger the younger son in her womb will be the heir, not the firstborn. Later in Scripture, in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul interprets this phrase. The older will serve the younger. And you can read this in Romans 9 verses 10 through 12. He interprets that one phrase, that little bitty phrase, As God's sovereign choice of one child over the other child while they're in the womb, before either is born, and Romans 9 says before either has done, good or bad. That phrase is meant to remind us this morning, the older will serve the younger, that God chooses whomever He chooses. God is sovereign in election. And Paul says this in Romans 9, that God did this in this specific instance. He chose Jacob over Esau. Romans 9, so that God's purpose according to election might stand. Might stand. So this is one of many places in the Bible that we're reminded that the God of Scripture has the sovereign right to be merciful to whomever He will be merciful. That's the God of the Bible. And we need to check ourselves. Okay, If your God doesn't have the sovereign right to show mercy to whomever He will show mercy, you better check yourself. Because the God of Scripture is merciful to whom He is merciful. It's His sovereign prerogative. Before either child is born, before either does good or bad, this is his purpose in election. And in this specific case, he reverses the natural order, He reverses the natural order, and God often does this with His purposes in election. In fact, I want to read this to you in 1 Corinthians chapter one, often throughout Scripture. We see the Lord take the normal ways that, that things are done in the world and then He flips them upside down. Or you could even say right side up. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 says this, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You say, why election? Why all this stuff about election? The Bible says this, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. So that no human being would ever dream that is because of anything in you that you're saved, that you're in heaven forever. So that no human being would boast in the presence of God. This is the sovereign God of election. This is a prophecy. Prophecy in the womb. Prophecy during the pregnancy. And then as the twins are born, we see that their birth is also prophetic. Think about this. Think think about how, how intense of a struggle that this foreshadows that these two boys... As they're being delivered, in the process of being delivered out of the womb, they're still fighting. They're still crushing one another. And the younger comes out grabbing the older's heel. This is a prophetic sign that this struggle is going to carry forward their whole life. Jacob, the younger son, is born grabbing the heel. His entire life will be marked by a struggle to outdo his brother. To strive against his brother. To to take the place of his brother. To run past his brother, the firstborn. And this struggle continues as these boys grow. We'll pick it up again in verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. At this point in the text, this birthright tension, it reaches a climax in this story. And it seems so, so little. It seems so normal in the normal rhythms of life. And yet this affects eternity for these men. Esau comes in from the field. The text tells us that he's starving. He's starving. word the ESV uses in verse 29 is he's exhausted. The best word there is he's famished. He's in a weakened state caused by hunger. He's in dire need of food. And some commentators speculate that this actually happens during the famine that's mentioned to us in the first verse of the next chapter of Scripture. Esau is famished. Verse 30, Esau says to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am famished. I'm starving. I need food. And at this point, the striver who was born striving, grabbing the heel, the prophesied one who was prophesied to outdo his older brother, this is the moment where he runs past him. And he sees his brother Esau in a moment of dire weakness and he pounces on him in treachery. Vicious pouncing. And he snatches the birthright. Verse 31, Jacob said, sell me your birthright and I want you to circle this in your Bible. Now. Now. Right now in this moment. Don't just tell me you'll do it later. I want to take advantage of this situation right now. Do it right now. Sell me your birthright. Now. And I'll give you the stew. And just to make it Double sure in verse thirty three Jacob says this Verse thirty-three swear to me. Swear to me now. This was to make this exchange swearing it would have meant that Esau would take an oath, making it irrevocable that this transaction it cannot be revoked because it's sealed with an oath. Irrevocable transaction. Most likely, that oath would have been sealed with taking the name of the Lord upon his lips and selling the birthright to his younger brother. Jacob pounces on him, snatches the birthright, and makes it irrevocable. Now, there are lots of different things that that we could focus on in this particular chapter. We could focus on Isaac's failures, of why he preferred Esau over Jacob when the Lord told him in His Word that the the older will serve the younger. Why in the world would he have gone against the Word of God? We could go that route. We could focus in on Jacob's failure in this passage of viciously and ruthlessly... Ruth, ruthlessly pouncing on his brother in a state of starvation, basically. But interestingly, as the Bible comments back on itself in this story, the one who singled out for us in this passage in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is Esau. Is Esau. And so we're going to take our cues from Scripture itself this morning, that Scripture itself pronounces Esau in this transaction as the guilty one. The apostate. The profane one. The one who despised his birthright. And so this is where we're headed as we close this morning. We're going to take this example, this negative example in Esau's life, and we're going to use it as our exhortation from this passage of Scripture. I want to give you one reminder before we go there. When that verse tells us, verse 34, that Esau despised his birthright, you have to remember where we're at and who we're dealing with. Okay? This is not merely the firstborn in some random family in the ancient Near East. That despised his birthright, okay? That would have been foolish. That would have been bad enough. We are talking about the chosen royal messianic lineage that despised his birthright. This is a spiritual heritage that he sells for a bowl of stew. The choice that Esau made about the stew, it seems so small, right? seems so small, so normal. How in the world could something this random seal his fate forever? How in the world such small choices determine this man's eternity? And what I want us to see is that it was in the normal rhythms of his life, but all this situation did, and for all the wrong that Jacob had and, and tempting his brother, all this situation did in Esau's life was expose what was already in his heart. It exposed his character. He was a despiser of the birthright. And this is not a small thing, okay? In this chosen family, this meant that he turns his back on Yahweh, on the Lord, the one true God, for a bowl of soup. For a bowl of soup. He despised not only the temporary advantages that were to be His upon the death of His Father, He despised the messianic promises. The messianic prophecies. And His despising showed Him to be disqualified to be the spiritual heir of Isaac, His believing father. He is the apostate Son, the one who turns his back on the Lord. Now I want us to see his sin very clearly. What is Esau's sin? And we're going to try to dial this down. That in a famished moment, that famished moment exposed that this man could not care less about the Messiah. He couldn't care less about the Messiah. Listen to how dangerous this is. God had made this promise to this family that they were going to inherit this promised land. Offspring like the stars of heaven and bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. But you remember what Hebrews says. That all these patriarchs, they died without receiving the promise. It was future-oriented. Future-oriented. Esau couldn't hold it in his hands. It required faith. And he saw it to be worthless. It wasn't tangible enough for him. It didn't meet anything in his life. It didn't satisfy his here and now. And so he despised it. He counted it of no value. He didn't just walk away from his birthright and his father. He walked away from his father's God. And this is seen again in the very next chapter of Genesis that Esau begins to accumulate pagan wives for himself. And the text tells us that this was a great grief for his godly mama and his godly daddy that he begins to multiply these pagan wives. He doesn't care about the Lord. He doesn't care about these messianic promises. He was a man of the world. Think about that. As we begin to understand his sin, we see how closely his sin is a warning to us. He was a man of the world. He was a man who lived for the here and the now. And we get exactly what he thinks about the value of these messianic promises. In verse 32, he says this, I'm about to die. Of what use is this birthright to me? Give me some bread. I need something to eat. These promises are worthless to me. Now I want us to understand, what's he saying? Because his birthright is a spiritual heritage, it's basically the equivalent of this. I'm about to die. What use is eternal life to me? Give me some bread. I don't have time to think about eternity. I need something to eat right now. What use is it to me? This birthright. And just like Adam before him, he sells his birthright for food, for a meal. Just like Adam before him. Flipping the words of Jesus around, he chooses to live by bread alone and not by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And, And listen, let this sink in. This is what unbelief looks like in every generation. It looks exactly like Esau. In every generation. Live for the moment. Gratify the flesh. Concerned with the here and now. Concerned with time. And not concerned with eternity. More than anything else, the mark of unbelief is bored with God's glorious Gospel. Bored with God's glorious Gospel. Do you know how dangerous that is? To hear the beautiful things of Jesus Christ. The beautiful messianic promises. The glorious grace of God that has been extended towards you and Jesus Christ. And for your response to be, yes, so what? What's for lunch? It reveals the heart. It reveals a despising of this glorious grace that God has given you. This is what unbelief looks like in every age. Now, the writer of Hebrews takes this, this story of the stealing of the selling of the birthright between Esau and and Jacob, and it applies it, this story, as a warning for us who are in the church. A warning for us who are in the church. Okay, So when Scripture gives a warning, the church are the only ones in the world who actually heed that warning. So what does that mean? Is the warning for the church or not? Yes, the warning is for us. We're the only ones who will take heed to this warning. Those who belong to the Lord. You say, what does Esau have to do with me? What does Esau have to do with me? I'm in the church. Brothers and sisters, I want you to ask yourself these questions. This is a time for sober, serious, heeding of warnings in Holy Scripture. Do you take comfort this morning that you know the true gospel? Not the false gospel. Do you take any comfort this morning that you know the real gospel? The glorious grace of God that He has extended to us in Jesus Christ. Not the message of works, but the message of free grace because of the atoning death and triumphant resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, do you take any comfort this morning that God has revealed to you the true Gospel and not the false Gospel? Do you know the Gospel? Do you know it? And here's here's the examination. So did Esau. He was about 15 years old when Abraham died which means that his granddaddy had time to sit him on his knee, maybe on a dark night, point to the stars in the heavens and say, you know what? The Lord promised this family that there's a Messiah coming, there's a chosen one coming, and He's going to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth, and His offspring are going to be more numerous than the stars of heaven. He knew the true Gospel. He knew the Abrahamic promises of God and he despised it. He knew it and he didn't care about it. He knew it and he didn't care about it. This theme is picked up in 2 Corinthians 4 that specifically what Satan is said to do in 2 Corinthians 4 is he blinds the minds of unbelievers. Blinds the minds of unbelievers. You know what that text says? He blinds them from seeing not only the true gospel, but its glory. He blinds them from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered that? How in the world someone can hear the glorious name of Jesus and His triumphant resurrection from the dead in His gracious Gospel. How in the world somebody could hear that and be bored? The Bible says that their eyes are blinded and they don't see glory when they see Jesus Christ. Do you know the Gospel this morning? So did Esau. So did Esau. Are you surrounded by godly men and women in your life? Godly influences. Those who spur you on to holiness and to love Jesus Christ. And I want to especially apply this to children in Grace Community Church. Children. Do you know how gracious God has been to you? That your mama and your daddy are Christians. They're not pagans. They don't call upon the name of false gods. They're Christians. They worship Jesus. Are you thankful for that this morning? That you can look to the left, that you can look to the right, and you have tangible examples in your life all around you of people that love Jesus. And here's a sober, sober warning this morning. So did Esau. So did Esau. Esau's grandfather called upon the name of the Lord, sojourned in a land of promise for a hundred years, built altars and called upon the name of Yahweh. Esau's daddy served the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Esau's mama served the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And yet this man, he despised his birthright. He despised it. For a single meal. And my question to you this morning is are you taking heed in your life that you don't do the same thing that Esau did? That you despise these privileges that are all around you? Are you taking heed that you don't do the same thing that Esau did? This is exactly what the writer of Hebrews admonishes us to do. Hebrews 12, verse 16, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent. Though he sought it with tears. Beloved of God, Grace Community Church, brothers and sisters. I fear and tremble. And I'm not the only one. I speak on behalf of many of us. I fear and I tremble. When I think about the possibility of an Esau being among us. And numbered among us. Around the things of Jesus Christ. Look to the left, looking to the right, but at the end of the day, bored to death with Jesus Christ. Bored to death with His glorious Gospel. The mark of an Esau's worldliness. A man or a woman who's consumed with time and not eternity. Consumed with the world, the pleasures of the world, the enjoyments of this world, this age. The possessions of this world and this age. This is what they mark as valuable, not the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a fearful thing of sinning away your spiritual privileges of being so close to the gospel of Jesus Christ and yet unbelieving. Fear and trembling. Imagine giving an account of this on the day of judgment. There are millions of people that will stand before the Lord God and give an account of all of their sins and condemn to eternity who have never heard the name of Jesus. Millions are guilty and have never heard the name of Jesus. I want you to imagine the day of judgment when the Esau's within the people of God give an account of how many times they heard the Gospel. How many times they heard it. The pleading, the glorious grace of Jesus. That they were so close and rejected it. That they were so close and rejected it. Fear and trembling. Sinning your way to hell. So close to the Gospel. We think Esau was a fool, and rightly so, because he sold eternal life so cheaply. He sold it for a bowl of stew. But I want you to to think about Jesus' question this morning. Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What does it profit a man to gain the entire universe and lose his soul? I want you to consider that this morning. What could you possibly gain in this life that's worth losing your soul into eternity? What could you possibly gain that's that valuable? That's what Jesus' question is, is probing. What sin is it that you find so enjoyable that you're going to drink it down to the dregs and inherit judgment through all eternity. What sin is that good? What sin is that valuable? What what could you possibly gain in this world that's worth losing your soul? And what I hope you see is everything that you can imagine that would cause you to despise your birthright from the perspective of eternity, it's a bowl of soup. Ten million dollars in your pocket right now is a bowl of soup compared to eternity. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? The most foolish decision that a man, woman, boy, or girl could ever make is to choose time over eternity and stuff over Jesus. The most foolish decision that you will ever make. And I I want to speak to anyone who's under conviction that the Holy Spirit of God is awakening you to things in your life right now that you must turn from. And I want to remind you that the ruin of Esau, it came not so much because he sinned, as much as he refused to repent. Not so much because he sinned, as much as he refused to repent. Look at verse 34. Look at the verbs. He ate, drank, rose, and he went his way. And I want you to observe how casual this man was in the process of turning his back on Jesus Christ. Ate, drank, rose, and went his way. Sold his birthright, what's for lunch? Refusal to repent. The problem with some of us in this room is our apathy to our own state. You need to be more, somebody here needs to be more bothered than you currently are. You need to get angry. You need to be disturbed. You need to lose sleep over the state of your soul. You don't need to go to work tomorrow. Everything in your life needs to hit a screeching pause. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And yet Esau sends his way to hell and he's casual about it. And our prayer is that the Lord would wake us up as we consider our latter end and these echoes from eternity. Wake us up, Lord. It's a fearful thing to consider an Esau within the body of Christ, an Esau within the church. And I want to leave you with with a word of hope. There is hope for you. There is hope for you in Jesus Christ. There is hope for you. I want to remind us of the true Son of God. This whole story is about birthrights and inheritance. And the Bible tells us that God has a beloved Son. His one and only begotten Son. And His name is Jesus Christ. And His birthright is not just a time thing, it's from eternity. Jesus is the firstborn, Colossians 1, of all creation. He's the true Son of God. And his, his eternal inheritance, Jesus sealed it with His perfect obedience, even obedience of death, even death on a cross. His inheritance is sure. And I want you to think about not only Esau this morning, but Jesus. Esau was treacherous. Esau was unbelieving. Esau was unfaithful. Jesus was none of those things. Jesus is the faithful One. The One who never sinned. I want you to remember that holy moment where the Son of God, He also was famished. The Gospels tell us that He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and He ate no food. And the Bible tells us that He was hungry. He was in a weakened state. And you know what Satan did? did. He came to the Lord Jesus and He said, if you really are the firstborn, if you are the Son of God, take this stone and make it a loaf of bread. He was tempted in the same way that Esau was tempted. He was tempted to send away his spiritual inheritance and his birthright. And Jesus is faithful where Esau failed. He chose to live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is your Savior, the faithful one, the one who is tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. And the Gospel of Jesus Christ reminds us that Jesus is willing to share His perfect record of faithfulness with you. If you're an Esau... If you've squandered your inheritance and lived in the world, the Gospel is Jesus will give you His record and Jesus will take your record upon Himself. Jesus is the chosen one. The true and better Jacob. Jesus will love you as His brother or as His sister in a way that Jacob would never have loved you. Jacob was treacherous and he pounced on his sinful brother. What does Jesus do? Jesus is the true and better Jacob that is willing to shed His blood for His sinful brother and sister and share His inheritance. His eternal heavenly inheritance to all who come to Him. The only thing that will keep you out of heaven is a refusal to repent. A refusal to turn, a refusal to come to Jesus Christ. And so I'll leave you with this final exhortation do not be an Esau. Come to Christ. Come to the Lord Jesus. Come to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for sober warnings in Scripture. God, we pray that You would help every one of us, Lord, to fly to Jesus with all of our convictions, Lord, with all of our doubts. God, help us, Lord, to go straight to Your Gospel and take it up with faith, Lord, Your glorious promises. God, we ask You to purge us Every single one of us, Lord, of unholy affections. God, the worst thing in the world I can imagine for a false convert, Lord, is is ignoring their condition. Holy Spirit, I pray that You would be the one who takes the knife to the heart this morning and brings real conviction of sin. That bursts real faith In Jesus Christ. God, we pray as we take heed of this warning and we tell ourselves in Your presence, Lord, we're no better than wicked Esau. And so our prayer today is hold us fast, Lord, and make us stand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.